Happy Father's Day. How you doing, dads? How about the rest of the family? Did you help dad out this morning? I can tell some people help dad out because dad's not here. He's golfing, I guess. There's a lot of dads that are missing here. Well, for the dads that came, I got something special for you. If nobody else did anything special for you, I have an offer that I would like to make. It's a real estate deal. It'll only take a couple minutes before we get the sermon going. So here it is. Uh, it'll be the deal of a lifetime. Have you ever heard that? Not from your pastor, I bet. This would be something you can't pass up. A bit, it's a piece of land, and you're not going to be able to see it, and it's on a little bit of shaky ground. Other than that, it's pretty good. It really is. And I promise you it'll be dirt cheap. True, it might be taken over by the military. There's been rumors. But the way things are going in the military right now, I doubt it. I strongly doubt they're going to take it over. Who's worried about that? I think you should buy once you hear about this. True, it might be hard to use for anything, but probably there's some use for it. Could be a good investment. I personally guarantee it as your pastor. I guarantee this land. So I'm going to ask you in a moment to buy it. No checks, please. No credit cards. I just want cash because this deal's too good. And uh, I need you to sign. There's going to be a clipboard that's coming by with some envelopes and uh, this is done just on trust. And then when these come by, I want you to take every stitch of cash you have in your wallet and just shove it in there. And don't even put your name on it. I promise we'll get back to you some way because ushers are looking somewhere. Just shove it in there and the land will be yours. We'll write you about it in about a month. I don't think there's anybody dumb enough that would take that offer or anything like that. But uh, the trouble with buying things sight unseen is that you don't know firsthand what you're getting right? The trouble with buying things that you hear about it, if you meet somebody, go, hey, listen, I, I, it's kind of like those emails. Does anybody else have a lot of relatives in Nigeria besides me? <laughs> Who Apparently, there are, there's a ton of my family that lives out there, and they're going through a crisis. I don't know why, because apparently they're multimillionaires, and uh, they, need to leave, they need to leave their millions to someone. The only one they can find is me. I just need to write them back and go, I've got a lot of relatives. How come I'm the only one you can find? And they want to leave me millions. All they need is all my information. Everything sent to them. Bank account and all that. And then they'll just fill it up. They'll fill my bank account with millions in my name because they love me. They're my relatives. They're my family. But if you get an offer on sight unseen and people make a lot of promises, you're totally dependent on the word of the one who's selling it to you. So I would have hoped that more of you would have responded in joy because it was me. You have to put faith in with something dumb like this, you got to put faith in his nonsense and his baloney and believe that what you're buying is everything that he says it is. If you can't see it for yourself, you're just going to have to believe the one that's, that's kind of hawking it, the one that's selling it, that he's telling the truth. And that's risky in a sinful fallen world filled with fallen people. That's more than risky. We've all heard of the different scams. The classic swindle, growing up I would hear a couple of things and, and as I was in elementary school and then junior high, high school and all this, I heard these two classic scams. And I'm going to give them both to you this morning. I mean, not scams, deals. And, uh, and you probably heard them too. But I decided to do a little bit of checking and find out what these were. Because I didn't really know. It's just something you repeated. Uh, so if somebody's really gullible, you'll hear them say this. Well, listen, if you believe that, I've got some, has to do with Florida, finish it. What is it? I've got some swamp land, right, in Florida that I'd like to sell you. I heard that growing up. What's the other one? It has to do with a bridge. Right. If you, wow, you've been, somebody over here has been sold a lot of things. The other one's the Brooklyn Bridge. I'm not even sure I've ever seen it. But for some reason, that's the same. Well, if you'll believe that, I bet you'd buy the Brooklyn Bridge. Where did those things come from? I'm glad you asked. Because I have the history of it. I can give it to you. The classic swindle along these lines involves a company that was selling Florida land when the boom first opened up that territory in the United States. And that happened in the 1890s. Henry Flagler, he built a railroad down the entire Florida peninsula. And people swarmed to get land somewhere, anywhere, as long as it was in Florida. That was the hot thing. One company offered its acreage at incredibly low prices. Sounded almost too good to be true. And... Sadly, it was. Their prices far less than the going rate what other people were doing. Now, this company displayed maps. It's funny because they did have pictures um, showing exactly where the land was located and describing very spacious lots that were going to be available with gorgeous views. 
um, simmering sunsets, and their sales just went through the roof just on these little things that they offered. This land sold as if there were no tomorrow. But when the buyers from the cold northern states, it's not funny, this is sad actually, what happened, went south to claim their purchases and make arrangements to build, they found that they had bought acreage in a swamp under three feet of water. The land they bought, it was real, they had land, but on average, it was under three feet of water. Not a lot you can do. Not a great deal, right? Unless you figure out a way to drain millions of acres of that, they were, they were ripped off. Now, as if that were not enough of a swindle for us to think about, not many years after the Florida land boom, there was a boom of another kind. This is that bridge that I was telling you guys about. Here's another one that you heard about. Hundreds and thousands of, you know, actually hundreds of thousands of immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe. They were running from oppression in their countries. And, you know, first it was England. And, but then it began to be the people that came to Ellis Island in the late 1800s and early 1900s, pretty much, much from Germany and maybe Scotland and um, different, different places in Southern Europe that were really persecuted. And they, they had heard in America, of course, there's freedom of religion. Uh, but there were also all kinds of rumors about America that there was just cash laying around. And there's just all kind of deals. I mean, they literally believed over there for a while because they didn't see it. The rumors were that if there's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is there. It's in America. I mean, people don't know what to do with their cash. Once you get there and hardly do anything, you're going to have more money than you know what to do with. Uh, these people brought little with them, the, the Polish, the Russians, the Italians, the Germans. Uh, but what they did have, everything they had saved up, they were ready to invest in the quote-unquote American dream. And that made them gang, that made them sitting ducks for shysters. And so in the 1920s, one of the favorite tricks as immigrants poured into the Lower East Side was to point out the stunning Brooklyn Bridge. I mean, I can't believe that the people fell for this, but they did. Look, look how shiny and beautiful that Brooklyn Bridge is standing proudly on the skyline. And then tell them, for only a few rubles or some lira, that bridge could be yours. And people believed it. By the hundreds, people believe. Never mind that the Brooklyn Bridge was not for sale, nor did it belong to the salesman, obviously, who said they sold it, nor that it's worth, even if it were for sale, was infinitely more than anything that they were saying it would have been sold for. These newcomers that were struggling thought they had something that was not too good to be true, but true. They bought. They plunked down their hard-earned money for nothing that looked like something. They gave away their money and they received nothing of value in return. And that's why today when you find somebody who will believe anything you tell them, they'll say things like, well, if you'll believe that, there's some swampland in Florida I'd like you to, like you to take a look at. If you will believe that, I bet, I bet they would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. So that's where those sayings came from. But this week as I was going through the Word of God, I found a story in the Word of God that's the same thing. So apparently swampland and the Brooklyn Bridge weren't the first things like this. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 32, some of you are going, that could take a while, Pastor Rob. I don't, I don't read Jeremiah a lot. Give me a hint. Find it. It's in the Old Testament. It's after the Psalms, not far after it. You'll get there. And, and in fact, here's what I'd like you to do. Let's stand in honor of God's word, and, and I'll read it to you if your iPads haven't gotten you there yet. Uh, and, and it's basically, keep in mind as I'm reading this, this is basically the Florida land deal thousands of years ago. This is the Brooklyn Bridge of Jeremiah's time. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in the 10th year of Zedekiah, of the rule of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was in the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now at that time, the army of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, because Jeremiah had a habit of prophesying against Israel, against Judah, and the things he had to say were not nice, so they they wanted better prophecies. They wanted health, wealth, and prosperity prophecies. Since he wasn't giving them, they just locked them away and actually gathered around them prophets that would tell them good stuff that they wanted to hear. Nothing like the church today, right? Now we're getting off track here. Let's keep going. So at that time, the army of the king of, of Babylon was besieging him. Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, why do you prophesy and say, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm giving the city into the hand of the king of the Babylon, and he shall capture it. Why do you say that? Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans. 
but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon and shall speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you won't succeed. So this is getting bad. Another prophecy from Jeremiah. That's not what they want to hear. You won't win this fight. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Verse 7, behold, Hanamel, the son of Sholem, your uncle, will come to you. Now, this looks like there's a left-hand turn in the text. Because here comes the land deal that seems to have nothing to do with literally anything. Will come to you in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord. And he said to me, buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamil, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed. I sealed it. I got witnesses and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the items and the terms of conditions, and I opened the copy. And I gave the deed of the purchase to Barak, the son of Neriah, son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanamil, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses, and signed the deed of purchase. And in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard, I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in the earthenware vessel. They may last a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in my name. You can be seated. So I'll read that and you're going, that's just bizarre. I don't get it, Pastor Rob. What is that about? Well, about 2,600 years ago, the prophet Jeremiah stood in the midst of, of a horrible time with God's people, a desolate city, Jerusalem, and he, and he wept for its fate. Interesting, centuries later, Jesus would ride into Jerusalem and again weep for its fate because he knows bad things are coming, because they won't listen and they won't live for God. So he's weeping for the fate of God's children and God's chosen people because they haven't listened. And he has warned them and he has warned them, but he hasn't, they haven't listened. And he knew without question that the city was doomed and that the kingdom of Judah would fall. God had made that very, very plain. Jeremiah could see that its king would die, that its sons would be executed, and that the people would be taken into exile. So it's really a horrible set of circumstances. It couldn't be worse. The collapse of every kind of stability, the monetary system, everything. Not the time to make an investment in property, right? Not the time to buy a field. Negative times, very iffy times. Time to hunker down and stuff your money, not even in the bank, but maybe under your mattress. Nothing feels safe. And then just at that moment, his cousin comes along. Offering Jeremiah the chance of a lifetime to purchase a field in the village of Anathoth, a field that had belonged to Hanamel's father and Jeremiah's uncle, Shalom. Not Shalom, the word Shalom, but Shalom sounds the same. Now consider the circumstance. It's a little village, a little obscure village, out in the countryside, nothing but cornfields, not much of a place for business in the first place, and now we got the Babylonian empire empire and the king of Babylon breathing down their necks. And it's very likely, it's not even very likely, it's absolutely positive that Judah is going to be defeated. In fact, he says, you'll go out there and you'll fight, but you won't win. Which, if they'd have listened to Jeremiah, they probably shouldn't even have fought. It's going to go bad. This conqueror will probably confiscate every bit of private property that you have. And even if he doesn't, all the men of Anathoth will be soldiering or enslaved or exiled, or dead. So who's going to plow and plant this field that Jeremiah is going to buy? You know what it sounds like to me? It sounds like Florida swampland. It sounds worthless. And if, in fact, the king takes it away somehow, it might be, by everybody's thoughts and by what you can see and what you can tell, it might end up being a Brooklyn Bridge situation, a whole lot of money for something that will never be yours anyhow. So let's eavesdrop on this real estate deal a little bit. He bought the field. Against every bit of good business sense, he bought the field. But listen, this isn't about good business sense. This is about a prophet who's hearing the voice of the Lord, and he's doing this as an illustration to the people. Why? For what earthly purpose would God have him buy this field? Well, it wasn't for an earthly purpose. It was for a heavenly purpose. 
And it was to demonstrate faith in a God who keeps faith with his people. It was to demonstrate how it's better to trust God who never lies and always keeps his promises, even if it's not today, even if it's down the road, than it is to trust in your own earthly power and your own wisdom, kind of like America's doing right now, trusting in ourselves when we're drifting away at the same time from the God who this country was founded on. And like Dr. Phil would say, this just keeps coming to my mind. How's that working for you? How's that working for you, America? Not following God, but doing it your own way. And then past where I read verses 16 and 17. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord saying, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too hard for God. That was Jeremiah's faith. And the circumstances look like there's no way this is going to work. This is not what we dreamed of. We're God's people. Going into exile doesn't look like God is favoring us. Everything's going bad, and yet God is faithful, and he'll keep his promises. And that's what, God's faithfulness is what inspired Jeremiah to spend his last bit of money on something that looked uncertain at best. I mean, honestly, pretty sketchy, right? I mean, it looks like his cousin's trying to rip him off. That's what drove the prophet to accept what to his detractors looked like Florida swampland. And to his friends seemed like nothing more than a Brooklyn Bridge hoax. Jeremiah just had faith. And he believed that God was not finished with Judah. Even though they're going to be disciplined, even though they're going to be taken away for a while, he believed that God will keep his promises. And this vision and this great thing that they once believed they were raised up to be, they will still be if they're faithful. So he's saying, just keep trusting God and invest. Don't pull away right now. Lean into me. Invest in the future. See the possibilities beyond the immediate difficulties. Buy the field for nothing is too hard for God. So what an obscure story. I don't remember the last time, or honestly, if ever, this story has struck in my mind. Just seems like one of those you kind of get through almost about as, as exciting as a genealogy, right? When you read through this thing, he bought some dumb land. What's this all about? Well, it kind of relates to what I want to talk to you about just for a few more moments this morning. I want to discern with you some things about where we're headed in back church, as I see it, and what we need to do to be faithful, and what we need to do to see God do in this church, what he raised this church up to do. Now, it doesn't always happen the way we think. In fact, I've heard from some of you this week, and you go, this is not what I thought it was going to be. This is not what I signed up for. And many of you that I talked to said, this is better than what I signed up. Some of you that I talked to said, I don't know if I want to do this. And so there's confusion. And there's uncertainty. And maybe to some of you, what we're doing is we merge with the families, get adopted by what I believe is probably the, the strongest church, at least in Charlotte, maybe in this whole region. I know some people kind of folding their arms and sitting back a little bit and going, there's a little bit of a Florida swamp feel to this thing. There's a little bit of a Brooklyn Bridge thing. I, I don't know. I've been through a lot. I don't know if I trust the church. I don't know if I should follow. But I hope you do. Nothing's too hard for God. And if you don't, I think you're going to miss out on one of the greatest things he has planned here. So I want to urge you as individuals and as a congregation to buy the field of Anathoth. Not the one that I was talking about this morning, but this one, spiritually speaking. I want to declare to you that God's not finished at all with Impact Church. It's just changing. And in fact, where we thought we might be in a couple of years, we might very well be in a couple of months. Because God is good. And because God is not finished with us. And because we are a faith-filled people. But we'll have to spend of ourselves to buy this field, this one that we don't know a lot about, this one that we hear about, this one that's uncertain, and this one that has us doing something that is out of the norm and merging with another church. <clears throat> and even though some of you will talk to others and they'll say, I wouldn't do that, that's a Florida swamp deal. I wouldn't do that, that's a Brooklyn Bridge kind of thing. I think those are the people that are going to miss out. <clears throat> I believe we're now actually, at a, well, we're obviously at a fork in the road for Impact Church, or you could call it a, a, a juncture, but I think it's an incredible one. And I do think that God is calling Impact Church 
to rethink our life and our work and our mission and deepen it as never before. Now, next week is going to look different in here. Next week, my good friend, my wife and I had lunch with David and Marilyn Chadwick on Friday and just got more pumped up and more excited about what they're doing and what the vision is at Forest Hill and, and the future for us. And, I, and as I'm sitting there having lunch and hearing all this and we're dreaming together, I wanted to tell you, I wanted to see how can I convince them? How can they see? And I just thought, they're going to have to hang in there. And they'll get to see it for themselves. And so next week, David's going to be here live. I will too. I'm live now, by the way. But I'll be here live again with David and we'll sort of be passing the baton and we'll be sharing some things together that are going to stretch you and they're going to stretch your faith and they're going to seem like something you've maybe not heard before, maybe not even heard of in other places. <clears throat> and it's going to ask a lot of you. But in my heart of hearts, it's a good thing. I know it's going to be a good thing. So let me lay it out for you in about three different headings. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write these down. Here's the three headings. Here's at least, and by the way, these aren't the only three things, but I think these are three right off the bat, major possibilities, things that I believe will happen as we're adopted into the larger family of Forest Hill. I think there's going to be a deepening in discipleship, a deepening in discipleship opportunities. I think, obviously, there's going to be multiplied ministries, multiplied ministries. It's going to happen right away, the opportunities that we have. And I believe there's going to be winsome worship. Why winsome? Because it's the only W word I could find that would match with worship. But I do think that's going to happen. And let me unpack these and explain it. The first thing, I believe the time has come for us to buy the field of Anathoth by committing ourselves to deepen discipleship. We have to take it deeper here. We must become a people who know what our faith is about and who can speak about our faith convincingly to really be the church, who can share our witness and who know our own hearts before God. Now, if you've been following me for several years, the church... And this is not just me, but I see a trend. It's been happening for about five years now. It seems like the church is sort of really pushing back on shallow Christianity. And I hope some of you have noticed this. And I'll, I'll give it some names. Some of you maybe have heard, you know, Kyle Eidelman's fan or follower. Or David Platt's radical. Or Francis Chan in crazy love. Where are all the, why are all these things popping up that just say, hey... Faith in Christ, the journey with Christ can be so much more than this shallow stuff. And God is not a vending machine, God, where you come to him and you just put your prayer request in and out pops the answer, whatever you want. And that's all that it's supposed to be in a relationship with Jesus. I mean, I mean, that's heresy. The word of God doesn't teach that at all. It's so much more than that. And so I think people across the nation are beginning to really push back from shallow Christianity. And so I know this has been a burden on my heart for something like five years. And so as your pastor, if you've been with me even more than impact, I've done fan or follower, radical, diary of a wimpy Christian would fit in, in here. Maybe some of your life groups have done experiencing God. But the, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but the point of all these courses is that they have, they have taken those of us who had, had sort of fragment knowledge about God and, and, and bits and pieces and odds and ends kind of knowledge, and it's helped us put it together systematically and carefully inside ourselves and really grow and figure out what following Christ is all about. Sure, your burden is light and the yoke is easy, but you know why? Because Jesus is there lifting it. But that's different than coming to Christ and saying, you'll have no burden, and it's really light because it's not even there. And when you're saved, your problems will go away and your riches will go up and your comfort level will be on, off the charts and life will just be easy and your health, it'll be unbelievable. You'll never get sick again. Well, I don't know that life. And certainly the first followers of Jesus didn't know that life. They were all martyred. One, the Apostle John was the only one that lived his full life into old age. And they tried to martyr him and he was banished to the island of Patmos. It, None of them died billionaires or millionaires or really with anything. It was tough. They took up their cross, literally. In Peter's case, literally. He was crucified upside down. So it doesn't really match that shallow message. It's really not the health that, that he died for, that you would have great health. Because here's how I know that. All the disciples died and, and death is very bad for your health. Last time I checked. And great wealth, well, you know, I've never seen a uh, Cadillac hauling a, 
or a hearse being taken to heaven. You can't take anything with you. I don't care how rich you are. Was it Rockefeller that said, I'm trying to think of who said this, but they asked his very, very wealthy father had died, and they said, how much did your father leave behind? And do you guys remember what he said? Well, of course. Everything. All of it. So it can't be that Jesus came and died so that you would have earthly wealth only because you can't take that with you. It's just temporary or popularity, prosperity or power and all that because all that's gone. So it must be something beyond that. Could it be that what Jesus really wants you to have is Jesus? You're going, I, I hope you're not disappointed. But I'm saying, I wanted more. I wanted the stuff of Jesus. I'm not so sure I wanted Jesus. Well, then you must really not know it. Because he's so much better than the stuff we think he just gives us. And could it be that what he wants you to have as a Christ follower more than anything else is him and deeper knowledge of him? Because that lasts forever. Oh, and all that other stuff, that's thrown in. In eternity, that's thrown in. So we take all these discipleship courses and we try to drive it deep. And they help move us from just coming to church and learning about church to truly beginning to follow Jesus and, and hopefully look like him and reflect him. And often the incubator in which we got to live out all this stuff that we learn about followership from, the incubator here and the incubator where I was pastoring before and the incubator, I promise you, at Forest Hill is smaller groups called life groups. Life groups. The, the ideal incubator in order to live fellowship out and to learn to follow Christ and to share our prayers and our needs with each other and to grow is in a smaller group. Impact has a few. Forest Hill has hundreds. Hundreds and hundreds of life groups all over the city, in every place, every age. There's a place for you to fit in the larger family of the life groups at Forest Hill. I've said this a lot. I don't know if it ever really sinks in. So uh, it's probably worth at least saying again. And I believe this, gang, growth happens best. Becoming more like Jesus happens best in smaller groups. In smaller groups. And I know over the years, if you follow me, you've probably heard me say that hundreds of times. But you and I were not made to go it alone. Some of you that have heard me say that hundreds of times, maybe you still don't believe it. Maybe you still, because the great American way is to do it independently. Do life independently. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. That's another one of those sayings, by the way, that I ought to chase down and figure out where it came from. Not real sure. But we go it alone. We're independent. I don't need anybody. I'll make my own money. I'm a self-made man. You know, I don't like having a lot of people around. I don't like messy relationships. I mean, just we're a lone ranger community. But God didn't make you that way. In fact, have you ever thought about it this way? God himself is community. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who have eternally existed. Three separate person, personalities and persons, and yet all God, co-equal. Forever and ever. There's no beginning to this community. And so think of it this way. We were made for community by community. And so if you and I try to go it alone and live outside of community and try to grow and be more like Jesus, who is part of the Godhead, of community, then we can't be like Jesus because he's community. So you're trying to be the American way and be like a God who's all about community. I'm going to go it alone and be just like you, Jesus, who didn't go it alone. Does that even make sense? And it can't happen. So a lot of things that are pushed conveniently in American evangelicalism are so far off track. We are made by community for community. And as we're adopted into the Forest Hill community, our options to do life together and minister together are going to increase at least a hundredfold. You know, years ago, and it must be about 10 years ago, I still remember when a choir came to sing where I was pastoring about 15 or 16 boys from Liberia. Is anybody around that remembers that? Anybody remember the Liberian boys that came? Well, they're from a war-torn um, part of Liberia. It was just, it, it was just horrible. I mean, poverty where they lived and, and they got a choir together to try and get the story out about what was happening with uh, the civil war there and what was happening at the orphanages. You know, rebels would come in and just kill kids. 
they lost their parents, these kids, you know, some of them maybe had one parent that was there. Most of them had no parent. Their parents were killed. They're living in orphanages. And they had to stay on the move because rebels were trying to come. I mean, their life was terrible. And they came and they sang, and, and I think they wanted to raise awareness, but what ended up happening is they made the mistake, or actually a very good choice of, of singing at, at, at our church, which at the time was pretty small. And one family said, I can't let these boys go home to that kind of life when our life is so good. So they decided to adopt two of the boys, and that fire just caught on. And pretty soon, all of those, their visa had run out. They were on borrowed time but they never had to go home because our little church adopted all of them. And it was such an incredible story. It, it got on Oprah. And God did a great thing of it. But I was thinking about all the challenges in a story that to those Liberian kids probably looked too good to be true, right? I mean, think if you're coming here to sing and you're trying to raise awareness and you're seeing all of what America's about and you're seeing families who have so much more than you ever had and you're expecting to go home and you're on borrowed time, but you're learning to live with it and all of a sudden a family comes up to you and says, you don't have to go home, you're our son now. Really? Do you have swampland in Florida? No, no, you're our son. Is there a bridge in Brooklyn that you're trying to sell? And how good that's going to go? How good that adoption is going to work out has everything to do with you stepping out in faith and believing, you just love me? I didn't earn this. I don't deserve it. You, I, I'm, just a, I'm just a part of this bigger, wealthier family just because? Just because. But why? God gave me a love for you. I'm adopting you. Just come home. Just accept it. But what's it going to be like for me? I mean, I've heard the story of Cinderella. Am I going to be scrubbing the floors? Am I going to be sweeping? Am I going to be cleaning out the chimney and all that stuff while your other kids do everything? And listen, some, some of the families struggle. Some of the boys struggle because they honestly couldn't quite get it. There were all kinds of reactions. Some of them really, really never, a couple of them never adapted to it because they kept thinking, you know, what I'm going to get out of this is a vending machine family. So what I'm going to get out of this is this family's wealthy, and if I'm really part of it, you give me stuff. I don't, I don't really like you, and I don't trust you, but you just give me stuff. And it doesn't work that way. There's a lot of friction there. And then others just kind of shut themselves down, and they couldn't be loved, and they, were just, they would just kind of close off because they just couldn't believe it. They just thought it was Brooklyn Bridge thing, a Florida Swampland deal, too good to be true. But the problem is it, it was true. The families really did love them. And I think about other families where they, they were convinced and they realized, you really do love me. And they accepted it and they became a working part of the family. And they joined in and they, they did things to help the family and loved each other, their new sisters and brothers and their new mom and dad. And it became a thriving family where more happened because it grew with these other believers than could have happened before. It's all in the way you receive it. After Jeremiah had bought his field, God said to Jeremiah, verse 39, I'll give them, the people, one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, reverence me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. So if we as God's people will engage in deepened discipleship and more and more meaningful community so that he can give us one heart and one way, It'll not just be good for us, but it'll be good for the people in the community around here, Waxhaw and beyond, because Forest Hill's reach is a lot bigger than what impacts is right now. It just depends on how you're going to receive it. Too good to be true? I want all the benefits of Forest Hill, but I don't really like you. Or you're really adopting us? What do you get out of this? Well, we get a new family together, and we'll love you just as much. We'll be a part of it, only we'll do greater things together than we could have ever done apart. Here's the second thing I believe that is way ahead for our church that is, well, actually, it's just right around the corner. I think it's going to take our ministry opportunity and things we wanted to be able to do two or three years from now, and it's going to multiply ministries. We have a few ministries now, but when we join with Forest Hill, there'll be many, many more. Some of you wanted to go on a mission trip. We tried to get it together to go to Haiti to really have that experience. And, and because we're brand new, it's just a little bit too soon for us. We couldn't quite pull it off, but there are, are mission trips, both locally and abroad, all over the world through Forest Hill. 
you really want to go? Your toughest choice is going to be, where do I go with all these choices? But you're going to have to decide, I want to be a part of the family, and I want to minister with this family. Or you can decide to sit back and go, let them do it. I'll just come, and I'll just show up, and I'll just fold my arms. It's all in how you receive it. Every person associated with this congregation, which is soon to become a bigger congregation, ought to be involved in at least one ministry that reaches out and touches the lives of others. It, it, only in America do we have this distorted view of the church where when we want to do ministry, we hire a pastor. And the pastors, the paid professionals, the hired guns, they do the ministry. And we all come and we learn facts about Jesus and go home. But if we want ministry done, we hire pastors. But gang, that's not how it was in the church. It's not how it should be. In the real church in Acts 2, when that thing started and forevermore should be, everyone who's a believer, every member of God's church is a minister. Everyone is. Think about how more effective. At this point in time, Forest Hill Church with all men, women, and children is, is bumping up against about 7,000. It's not a tiny little church. Its reach is incredible. And we can join with that and, and starting now, have the opportunity to do outreach things here, locally, throughout Waxhaw that we just could not have done. God is good. God is good. In fact, I, it's wrong to be jealous, but I'm jealous. I'm jealous for you. I am happy as could be for impact because of what God's done. I didn't see this coming. The Lord gave me this idea. I approached Forest Hill and, it, and God was all over it. But I'm jealous in a way because as I shared last week, I know that God's put a burden on my heart really for a couple of years and, he, and I just can't shake it. And I know that he's calling the Singleton family elsewhere. I'm jealous because you all get to do this and we, we most likely won't. Where are you going, Pastor Rob? I don't know. People keep asking. Wasn't that kind of dumb to take off before you know? Maybe. I don't think so. Abraham did it. Worked out pretty good for him. God just said, go. And when Abraham was convinced, absolutely convinced that it was God, he just started walking in the direction God said to go. And that's the beginning of the Jewish people. That's God's chosen people. Abraham started that just by being faithful. I have to be faithful to God. I have to do what he's called me to do. We have to go where he's called us to go. And though we don't know what that is, we have the peace of knowing that we are being faithful. But I'm jealous because the opportunity that you have is so great right now. I just hope you see it. I just hope you see it impact. Our mission is, has been, in this short little time, to rescue, raise, and release. Rescue the lost and raise them up in Christ and release them to do ministry. Forest Hills, and now ours, is identical, but they just put it different. Something like this, Forest Hill exists to, to know Christ, grow in Christ, and go for Christ. Don't you love that? I'll tell you why I love that. Because it's the same exact mission. It's the same exact thing. And it needs to be because both come from the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. And in fact, if a church's mission doesn't come from the Great Commission and the Great Commandment, then they're off mission. If your mission doesn't come from there, you're not on mission. Because that's the mission Jesus left us with. The mission is the Great Commission, and how we go about it is the Great Commandment. Some of you have heard me say before, the only thing I like better than seeing someone get saved is two people getting saved. And, and, and so on. The only thing I would celebrate more than two people getting saved is four people getting saved. The more the better. The more people that we rescue that are hellbounders, obviously the better. I want to see God's family grow and I want to see it grow big and I'm not ashamed of that. Why? Why would I be? I want to see us all have an impact in Charlotte. That's why we're named Impact, because that's what God put on my heart that I want to see us do. And the only thing better than having an impact on Charlotte is having a huge impact on Charlotte and beyond. I feel like Buzz Lightyear with that. To infinity and beyond. So do you see why we must be a, a church about multiplying ministries? To be faithful, we must be about that. And I think that's going to happen as we Merge. Multiplying ministries is buying the field at Anathoth. Some will think it's Swampland. Some will think it's a Brooklyn Bridge. Some have already told me. 
I had one guy email me and say, I, I, as though this might make me feel better, and it didn't. I had somebody email me and say, I came here for you, I came here for your preaching, and just for you, and so I'm not coming. Well, you should have never come here just for me. That's not what church is about. And you shouldn't go to Forest Hill for David Chadwick. And you shouldn't go to any church for the pastor. You should be going for Jesus Christ. The church is about him, and it's his church. It's not mine. It's not even yours. It's his. So I thought, if you can't shake that now, I hope, I hope this guy shakes it somewhere. Man will let you down. Third and final thing I believe we need to do is this winsome worship thing. And again, couldn't think of another word. But just expands worship to just one kind of worship our way and what we prefer and what we like to worship that reaches a lot of people. A pattern of worship which appeals to people and draws them and fills them and anoints them and, and empowers them. The truth is that no one way of worshiping is a way that everybody likes. And, you know, we've had people over even this short time at Impact that says, well, I'm not really used to that. I want 91.9 and I prefer hymns. And actually, I do love this, and, but I'd want to go. I mean, everybody hears that. It's pretty common at churches. I really couldn't sing today because I prefer I, I, I. I is not a word that you should have when you come to worship. It should be you, God, not I. When you're starting from the, what do I get out of it in worship, you've already started at the wrong place. That's not really true worship. It's more like going to a concert. Some may feel glorious, like me. My favorite hymn is How Great Thou Art. I love singing that. I wouldn't even mind singing it old style. Acapella, or, or even with a, a choir, just beautifully, majestically. But there's a generation out there now, and I know enough about it because I love it and I want to reach it, called the millennials, that knows nothing of that. And I'm sorry, they just don't, really. And there's a generation just right before them that knows only fast-moving images and dramatic stories and things changing up every five minutes. And if you're in that generation, I lost you 15 minutes ago in this sermon. You're drifting away. You're halfway to a coma. And there's some that may get their best feeding from three points in a poem type sermons that they grew up with. But the truth is that we're facing a generation that needs to, needs to talk back needs to dialogue. A generation that's just different. They're not going to do things the way we do. And that means a new style of worship. In fact, that means a whole new opportunity for worship. And not just singing songs, because worship is so much more than that. And so as we grow again and join the bigger Forest Hill family, they actually dial in. They are now in Fort Mill. They are in Ballantyne. They're coming to Waxhaw and they're in South Park up by Charlotte. And they have strategically looked at every single area they've gone to and learned what the styles are and the music because they're trying to, I mean, gang, it's that different. Charlotte's a melting pot and you go to different little spots and people worship a different way. And there's all kinds of different ways that they worship. That's going to expand. I don't know anything that captures the heart immediately or quicker than worship, than vibrant worship. So I suppose to some of you, all this sounds like Florida swamp opportunity. Impossibly murky. To some others, it sounds like a Brooklyn Bridge deal, a pipe dream that cannot be done. Maybe some of you have even studied a little bit. Go, I heard that mergers don't really work. Well, I mean, takeovers don't. Mergers should because we're all part of God's family. And when the DNA is the same, it can't not work. It can't not work. There's no doubt in my mind this is going to work. The only thing left is, will you have the faith? And God did bring his people home and did prosper that piece of property in that land, but not right away. And only for those who had faith to believe him through that time of separation, through that time of the desert. The church might be a some of you are thinking sort of a fly-by-night thing, this idea, but I know that for the next months and years of my life, whatever the cost Wherever the Singleton family does go, and hopefully this will be what impact does with Forest Hill, we're going to buy a field at Anathoth. We're going to trust God and we're going to do it. Even, I mean, if God is calling us to do it, even if it looks scary and I'm going, that is not what I thought. It's not even what I signed up for, God. I don't think that's what you even promised me, God. 
Well, God's ways are higher than mine. And he may change his mind in how he does this. For God said to Jeremiah, See, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. An everlasting covenant, not a temporary one. So when God says, I promise to fulfill this, wait, be patient. He will do it. He cannot lie. And I will put the fear, the reverence of me in their hearts, and they will not turn from me in that day. And I'll rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. So gang, I want you to hear just one privilege of what you're getting today. I would like Mike Bowler to come off. Where are you, Mike? Are you out there somewhere? And I want to introduce him to you. And some of you are saying, we know this guy. He was here a few weeks ago. Yes, I snuck him in on you a few weeks ago. And he is the campus pastor, the upcoming campus pastor for, and we'll use this. Where's the um, wireless mic here? I guess we don't. Do we not have the wireless? Oh, I'm good to go. Wow. He's already good to go. They okay. prepared. You guys are ahead of me. So what I'd really like you to share too is, is sometimes with a startup church, you get this. And especially with a, a pastor like me who's been at a larger church, it's hard for me to go back and do all the shepherding. And sometimes with a uh, of these new multi-sites and things that are coming out, especially when there's teaching and all on a video screen, people will say, well, I don't want to do that. I want my pastor right here with me. Who's going to take care of me? Who's going to shepherd me? Gang, you need to know in this changing world and culture, right now across the nation, multi-site churches, because they have this position and they have this person called a campus pastor, are getting better, deeper shepherding done with a flock than mid-sized and large-sized churches are doing without a multi-site campus pastor model. So I'm going to let him explain a little bit today, and I'm going to let him close out uh, with us this morning. Why don't you give him a warm welcome? Thank you. Thank you, Rob. Thank you all. Um, if you don't know, I feel like I need to confess now that I was born in South Florida. No swamp land in my family, but we did have alligators in our backyard, and oftentimes uh, when I played golf, you would have to shoo turtles, livestock, and uh, snakes and gators off of the tee. So it is great to be with you all. I want to take just a couple minutes to, one, say thank you. Uh, Rob, I can't tell you how much and how honored I am to be here and that you have cast this vision for... Forest Hill and for Impact Church. And you know, we live in a world that there are so many instances of churches dividing. There's so many instances of families dividing and relationships dividing. It's the work of the evil one in the world and it's not God's heart. And I got to tell you all, one of the things I am most excited about is that we're able to show Waxhaw, the surrounding communities, our churches and other churches that God's call is for us to unite together, that we're to be one like he is one with the Father, Jesus says, we are to be one with one another, and that we have an opportunity to do something that the church typically is not very good at. And you're right, Rob's right, if you looked on, if you've done any research, you know that church mergers can be a little bit tricky, uh, like any type of merger, like any type of joining together, even like a blended family might be with second marriages. There are lots of moving parts and lots of challenges, but also what is very clear is that the vast majority of them work when they are positioned like we are positioning this merger. The joining together of two groups that are like-minded, that have two senior leaders and two elder boards that are united around this, and who desire more than anything to have a mission to follow in what Jesus said, to seek and to save the lost. Mission unites us in that, and our common faith will give us a foundation to build off of. And I am so excited about that and, and humbled and honored to be here. I really do believe that we are, even now, and will be in the future better together than apart. God does orchestrate things in crazy ways. If you would have told me even six weeks ago, the week probably four days before I actually stood before you all and preached that this was even going to be on a radar screen impossible for me to do, I would have said there's no way. There's no way. Forest Hill is looking at Waxhaw being 18 months out and that we're slowly beginning this process and now suddenly we're looking at this happening now. And the question I've gotten a lot from folks is, well, Mike, how's it going? 
And what I've said is, well, it depends when you catch me. Some days and some moments I am so excited and other moments I feel like I'm going to pass out and throw up. And I vacillate between the two of those things. And my guess is some of you all may, maybe not to the extreme that I just said, but you may feel that way as well. And I want you to know that Forest Hill is humbly excited about joining with you all. You know, we've used the term adoption, and that is a term that is very fitting in many ways for the organization of the church, for the understanding of how we're going forward, for the parent-child relationship. But I want you to know, here among us, I want you to know it is much more simply a joining together of brothers and sisters in the faith. It is a joining together of people who are like-hearted and like-minded, and we are excited about going forward together in mutual ministry. And yes, there is the larger part of we will be Forest Hill Church Waxhaw, and yes, we will look like Forest Hill Church's other campuses, which will leverage some great opportunities for us. Uh, even now we're looking and researching uh, how to best make all that happen and I'll share some of that with you in just a few minutes but truly know that my heart my goal is that we would be brothers and sisters in the faith walking together I, I am sorry that my family can't be here today this has happened so quickly that they are finishing up responsibilities in Valentine, uh, which is the church that we attend, Forest Hill Valentine. But I did want to bring a picture of them. Just, uh, I promise I won't have a slideshow to show you our latest trip to Williamsburg, but I did want to show you our family. This is my wife, Andrea, of almost 20 years. We dated in high school, uh, went to the junior-senior prom. That was our first date. And she and I both said the one thing we don't ever want to do is be a pastor and a pastor's wife. God laughed at us and said, no, I have very different things in store for you. And it's been a wonderful ride together. We have learned to grow in our faith and our life together. Our two children, Ashley, she is 13, almost 13. she tell you she's 13, but she's still got three weeks to go. She loves sports and also uh, just had her first acting venture. And our son, Chase, who is three and a half, loves anything with wheels on it or water. So we are uh, so excited to be joining with you all and beginning to worship next week together as a family. Y'all need to know that my call to Forest Hill was almost 20 years ago, right after Andre and I got married. And David Chadwick and I have been friends for a very long time. And I have been honored and humbled to serve at Forest Hill for all these years. And most of my time has been spent in two areas, discipleship helping people to grow in their faith, grow deep in the Word of God, grow deep in their faith uh, and their understanding of how to live out that faith through service. And then the second part of what I've done most of my ministry in has been pastoral care and counseling. And I've spent a good deal of time working with people who are going through situations in life where they are wanting someone to come alongside of them, care for them, and love them. God has used those uh, opportunities for me to get a front row seat to see what God does in people's lives when the waters that they're going through are challenging and uncertain. And it's amazing because as I'm sure if we had time for all of us to share, you could say a time in your life where it's been uncertain and you've had to walk in faith. And when you have God strengthen that faith, he's encouraged the people around you. And it's been an opportunity for you to know the goodness of God. And that is at the end of the day, what oftentimes God pushes me and probably you too, to a point of having to trust that this next step, whatever it is in our lives, Maybe it's this church merger, maybe it's uh, uh, something at work, maybe it's a dating relationship, or maybe it's something at school or with your parents. But whatever that is, the next step God has, part of it is us trusting that that step is a step orchestrated by a sovereign God who loves us and who has, our plan, who has great plans for us. Now, speaking of great plans, there are a couple of things real quickly I want to share with you as I end this morning. Uh, Forest Hill's next steps and what things will look like. As you heard... Rob will be here next week, and he will be here with David Chadwick. The two will uh, speak together, and David's going to share his heart. David has been in ministry at Forest Hill for 30, over 30 years, almost 35 years. His first and only church he's ever served is Forest Hill Church here in Charlotte. And as we have grown, one of the things that our Council of Elders and David had to decide about eight years ago was were we going to be a very large regional church? Were we going to try to have 7,000 people 
on one campus and make that work or were we going to be a congregation that gathered together and tried to connect and tried to form pockets of real community where we were in essence the largest small church in Charlotte. That's been a mantra I've carried with care and with discipleship for years now that I want people who come to Forest Hill to feel like we're a small church but in fact be able to take and offer the benefits of a large operation where we are able to have lots of mission trips, have people who write life group curriculum specifically for children, have people who write life group curriculum specifically for adults who are going through certain things that we know our congregation, our congregation specifically is struggling with. So as we worked on that, one of the things that we said was we knew that we needed to shift to a life group centric model of ministry, which means that we live out our faith and our life together in groups. So now we have close to 70% of people who come to Forest Hill are part of an active life group. We also have life groups with children and with students and we believe that community together is where people grow in their faith. It's where they love one another and eventually it's where we uh, empower our groups to go and serve in local communities and around the globe. That's our goal, to create community. That was the first part. The second part is we recognize that just even the physical space of gathering together needed to be broken down. That rather than building an enormous campus where we would have thousands and thousands of people, that that just wasn't a good stewardship issue. It also wasn't a good evangelism issue because what we recognized was people in Weddington, people in Waxhaw, people in Fort Mill aren't going to say, hey, to their neighbor, will you drop by church this week? hey, we're going to have John Casey or a Panther in to speak, and I'd love for you and your boys to come hang out. It's a father-son thing, and we'd love for you to come. We knew people weren't going to drive 45 minutes to do that. But they would say, hey, just down the road, there's my church, and we can connect. So we've made a deliberate effort to go to video venues, which you need to know I thought was the dumbest decision we've ever made as a church. Have I gotten your attention? I thought it was ridiculous. I thought I cannot believe that we have chosen to do this at Forest Hill where we are going to have a video screen. I mean, who's going to watch a pastor on a video screen? I could just stay home and watch on my computer. Stay in my fluffy slippers and my bathrobe and the kids can play. It'll be great. Here's what we realized. With the level of technology the way that it is, we are able to orchestrate an environment that people actually suspend reality in some ways and it feels like that our senior pastor or primary communicator is in the room and that worship is live and that more importantly lives connect and I told you my family's at Ballantyne we went once and Rick recognized this is great and thought this is fantastic and we started attending and for the last five years my family's been part of one of our video venues so what I'd say is, hang on, we're going to work on the technology piece of it over the next few months to see if we can get it up to speed to where I think you may experience what I did, which was when worship is live and I'm connecting with people around me who I really enjoy being with, then I kind of forget that David's not right here, that he's somewhere else. And sometimes he will be right here. And sometimes I'll preach live, but most of the time it'll be a video venue. And I encourage you to think about that because that really was a goal of ours to say, we want to try to have life groups and congregation sizes all over the city where we're able to be a church that can feel like the smallest large church in Charlotte. Again, I'm so excited to be here. I would love to meet with you all as uh, you have opportunity. I would love to have coffee, connect with your families, and just get to know you and answer any questions. I believe another representative of Forest Hill is here today, Stacy Martin. You will see her as well. She's here to answer questions. So if you have any questions, I'm around and would love to talk as long as y'all are willing to stay, although I know we got to make it to the buffet. So we got a little while and I'm going to wrap up. But the last thing I want to share with you all is that I hope and I pray that as we move forward together in United Mission, that we will together discern God's call. That has been what we have together shared with our elders and with impact elders, with our staff and with impact staff. And now this morning, our congregation is hearing about this and you all are having a chance to hear from me. And what I'm hoping is that we would hear God's quiet, still voice calling us forward letting us know what his will is for each one of us and that as we do this together in trust and peace and unity that we will show the world what it means 
to follow after the one who says he loves us dearly. Will you all pray with me? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here today, Lord, all of us, to worship, to hear God's word proclaimed, to draw near to your heart. I ask now, God, that you would remind us that where you lead us, you will provide. You have shown that throughout the history of your people. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would lead us now and guide us. That this work would be a work to your glory. And that it would be a work that Waxhaw and the surrounding communities would be different. Because we have been faithful to your call. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.